to Genesis chapter 30. This is probably not the best uh, sermon technique, but I need to give you a couple little caveats here at the beginning. The first is this passage that we're going to read is pretty long. If you look at the verses up in front of you, you know that's the case. And I made a commitment to you early on that as we taught through the book of Genesis that I was not going to miss any verses. I was going to read all of them. Um, That doesn't mean I'm going to explain every single little detail in this big narrative because we'd be here for hours. But I'm going to read all of them. Uh, A friend of mine posted on Facebook last week. He's a pastor up in Philadelphia. And there are some redeeming things about Facebook. He said, uh, the most important part of what we're going to do together tomorrow is we're going to read God's Word publicly. Like it's even more important than what he was going to say about God's Word, and that's true. So my first caveat to you today is we're going to have to read a long section because we want to, first and foremost, submit ourselves to God's Word and to receive His promises. The second caveat is this is kind of an odd passage. There's some odd stuff in here. We're going to have to take our time to explain it well and then to apply it well. So with those caveats in mind, I may have lost a few of you already, and you think to yourself, why did I come this morning? Because there's like a, what, a noon kickoff or whatever. But the reality is we need to be here. I've said to you many times throughout our teaching through the book of Genesis that God's people, and this is kind of a a profound thought if you take time to consider it. God's people have been listening to these stories for over 3,000 years. That's a really big deal, right? Like, Like these are our family stories the reality is they're true stories, and they are stories that lead us to life. So with all my caveats in mind, as you listen now, I want you to read with faith. And if you are a person who struggles with paying attention to longer passages like this, and you tend to zone out and think about other stuff, ask the Holy Spirit now to help you as He teaches us through the Word. So we're going to talk today about faith versus faithlessness. And to give you a little bit of a grid or a filter to use as you come to this text and hear me read it and then hopefully explain it and apply it, I want you to keep those two major themes in mind. And they are contrasted over against one another and they highlight one another. Specifically, the faith that we see Jacob developing because of God's faithfulness to him and the faithlessness of Laban, his father-in-law, also his uncle, this schemer and manipulator and deceiver, the faithlessness of Laban who did not trust in a faithful God. So keep that grid in mind as you read, and may God be faithful to teach us. This is God's word. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country. Give me my wives and my children from whom I have served you, that I may go. For you know the service that I have given you. But Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Name your wages, and I will give it. Jacob said to him, You yourself know how I have served you and how your livestock has fared with me. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly. The Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household also? He said, what shall I give you? Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this for me, I will again pasture your flock and keep it. Let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. 
So my honesty will be answered for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Laban said, Good, let it be as you have said. But that day Laban removed the male goats that were striped and spotted and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had white on it and every lamb that was black, and put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob pastured the rest of Laban's flock. Then Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them and exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black and the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock. They might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So I just want to ask you, are you still with me? This is, this is one of those passages you look at and you think, why are we taking our time with this? Shouldn't we talk about like child rearing or something? Stay with me. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. The God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. And the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise. Go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion of inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, and livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padanaram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, 
He took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed gratefully for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out that which is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent, into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. He went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but not go find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. For my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then labor answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they are there by the heap. They ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, 
and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. May God bless to us the reading of his word. So we are talking today about the contrast of these two major characters in this text. And as I've said to you already today, when Moses recorded these things hundreds of years later, so let's think about the timeline here, uh, this is probably somewhere in the 17th, 18th century B.C., somewhere in there, we're dating this a little bit roughly, uh, the, the Exodus, when Moses would lead the people out of Egypt, would be in the 15th century B.C., so you're looking 400-ish years before Moses would have led the people out. That's kind of significant. 400 years is a really long time. So when Israel would have first heard these things recorded or had them read to them in a recorded fashion, even though they would have handed them down orally, this was hundreds of years later after the events. And of course, now we find ourselves thousands of years past the events. But Moses wrote these things down for Israel for a reason. What are those reasons? Well, if you think about it, here you have this group of people, probably over a million of them coming out of Egypt. Moses, their leader. God has done all these amazing things in their sight, mostly really horrible things to the Egyptians to convince Pharaoh to let them go. But they leave and go out into this wilderness area, and the first horrible thing that happens to them is that they realize that they can't feed themselves and they don't have enough water to drink. So they begin to complain. Next, they get backed up against a huge body of water we call the Red Sea. And Pharaoh decides, I want to go get my slave force back, and he pursues them with his army. So they have lacked sustenance, and then they lack safety. And very quickly, despite all the things that they had seen Jehovah, Yahweh, do in Egypt to, to encourage Pharaoh to let them go, they immediately lose faith. Well, you know the story if you've been around Christian teaching very long. God fed them with bread from heaven and birds from the air and water from rocks. And God took an ocean and parted the waters and made the land temporarily dry and allowed them to pass and then drowned Pharaoh's army. And then he took them to a mountain and he thundered down upon it, giving them a covenant. And despite their faithlessness, he fed them for decades and their sandals didn't wear out and he prospered them. God never, ever failed them. And yet, they grumbled and they complained and they didn't have faith. Moses wrote these things down, not just so they would know their family history, but so they would understand how their forefathers responded, and even more importantly, what God did to teach them and, and how that shaped their forefathers. Likewise, he never shied away from talking about the sin of their forefathers, and, and why their forefathers sinned. So if you're a 15th century Israelite, 
sitting around in the desert wondering where your next cup of water's coming from, wondering how you're going to feed your kids, wondering if the neighboring nations are going to come in and destroy you, wondering if you're ever going to make it to this promised land that old gray-haired Moses keeps talking about. If you're wondering that stuff, you need evidence for your faith. And brothers and sisters, if nothing else, the Bible is evidence for our faith. And so, much like Israel needed to hear the stories of their forefathers and how God had shaped them and the devastating consequences of sin, we too today need evidence for our faith because we struggle to believe. Many of you do. Now, there are a few of you who can kind of float through life and nothing ever really phases you that much. But most of us are not like that. When layoffs are threatened at work, we freak out. When we go for our yearly well check for our kids and the pediatrician says, I want you to get a second opinion on this little thing I see. It devastates us. When relational tension in our marriages or with our friendships arise and and our relationships become very fragile and brittle, we become very sketchy in the way that we approach life. And so as, as we look into this text, we, we see ourselves if we have eyes to see. Jacob was a schemer, but Jacob was a schemer who by this point is becoming a different person. Laban is who Jacob would have become apart from grace. And so in this text, we can see what what happens when God captures the heart of his own. Not because they're searching after him, because as the scriptures teach us, no one is searching after God. But God searches after his own, and he, he captures their hearts. And one of the things that I want you to see as we spend a little bit of time in this text today is that the promise of God to forgive you for your sins and to promise you eternal fellowship with him is not just some distant future promise. In other words, the gospel, the good news that Jesus sacrificed himself for you is not just to give you entrance into the eternal state. It's much more than that. The salvation that comes to us through the gospel of Jesus is about holistic renewal. It's about changing every part of us. And though Jacob who by this time is like in his 70s or early 80s, though he'd had a hard life, though he had made a myriad of terrible choices, we find him changing. And in that, we can take comfort. Because if we're being honest, we know that we're kind of a mess. On the other hand, as we look at Laban, one who was not set apart to God, one who did not have faith in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we find what sin left unchecked leads to. So this long text, though sort of obscure, one you might just skip over in your Bible reading and try to get to the next juicy stuff, this holds important truths for us, just like it did for Israel. And so it teaches us about faith and faithlessness. I'm going to put these two things in front of you on the screen, and we'll just kind of work through them as we go back through the text. 
Because the Lord always keeps His promises to His people, we can trust Him and do that which pleases Him. That's what's going on with Jacob. Because the Lord always keeps His promises to His people, we can trust Him and do that which pleases Him. But the kind of nasty side of this text is made up or bound up in the person of Laban. And we find this truth. Because the power of sin is strong, we must be on guard against our tendency towards self-dependence and destructive behavior. That second bullet point, that second category, up to this point, had mostly characterized Jacob. The power of sin was strong in him. And he was not on guard against his tendency towards self-dependence and destructive behavior. His whole life had been marked by that. But God had begun to change Jacob. I said to you last week that as we work through these texts, we find that they're just full of human stories. And I've said to you many times throughout our teaching through the book of Genesis that the primary message of Genesis is that God keeps His promises to the world. Specifically, that He would send a Redeemer to undo the power and curse of sin. So you think... All you'd have to do is have just like a little short summary statement. Why didn't God just say that? I made the world. The world rebelled against me. One day I'll send a redeemer. Like like that sort of summarizes the theme of Genesis. Then why do we go on for 50 chapters with all these human interest stories? It's where we live. This is what we're like. Struggling to trust a faithful God struggling to resist our tendency towards self-dependence and destructive behavior. And and so we see here these stories like, like a canvas, the human drama being played out, and we can see ourselves in them. Last week was about the difficulties of human relationships and how God uses them to teach us, change us, and give us opportunities to represent Him here. This longer section is about how God brings progressive and holistic salvation to his people. Jacob was a disaster, and everyone in his path was hurt in some way. But he changed. Laban was a disaster, and he wasn't changed, and we see the devastating consequences of sin. Laban is who Jacob would have become apart from gracious election. God made Jacob poor, And then enriched him by his own favor and in his time to show Jacob the devastating consequences of sin and to show him a better way. This long and arduous journey stripped Jacob of self-dependence and made him into a man of faith. So Jacob's life became a clear and poignant reminder of how salvation comes. And though we are saved in a moment in time when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, our substitute, there's a sense to which our salvation takes a lifetime. Don't you find that? If you're 20 now, you don't do some of the same things you did when you're 10, but you might do some things you didn't used to do. And sadly, you still do some of the same things you do. That doesn't really change necessarily when you hit 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and beyond. And so we live in this tension as God's people. We're changing. We're not who we used to be, and yet we still need to be changed. That's why discipleship takes a lifetime. 
It takes a lifetime to give up lying. Now, you may not do bald-faced lies like you did whenever you were five, but if we're being honest, sometimes we're still deceitful. You may not be quite as angry as you were as an early husband whenever you were 23, but sometimes your anger rears its ugly head still. You may not be prideful in quite the same ways that you were whenever you were 30, but when you're 40, you still struggle with the grip of pride. And so we come to this text and we see our need for hope and change. But the reality is, as we look at Jacob's life, is that God does change. And I want us just to park there for a minute and ponder this. As you've taken time to study through Jacob's life, or as you've been with us as we've studied through it together corporately, you have found that he did a lot of really terrible stuff. And because of that, what did he deserve? He deserved punishment. He deserved to be, to be forgotten, to be marginalized and set aside. I mean, you look at what God did with the patriarchs. Abraham was a pagan, worshiping pagan gods. Then God chose him and called him to himself. Abraham had a lot of problems in his family. Isaac came along. Isaac was not a lot better than his father in many ways. Isaac's family was a, was a disaster. Then Jacob comes along. And Jacob himself was a disaster. And yet all through the way, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and in the coming weeks we're going to learn more about Jacob's sons, and they weren't much better, we find that God keeps His promises nonetheless, and He transforms over time. And I want to say to you today that, that you can take heart in this. For all the terrible things that Jacob did, notice here at the beginning of chapter 31 that God makes a promise to him once again, verse 3. The Lord says to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. He does the same thing again later on in verse 13. You'd think there'd come a point where God would like set boundaries to use an overused American like psychological term. And he would say, Jacob, that, that's enough. Like, I've, I've given you every chance possible, and all you do is lie and scheme and deceive. And look at the destructive behavior and, and what it's left in your wake. I'm done with you. I'm going to go find somebody else. Maybe I'll try Esau. But he doesn't do that. He continues to make promises to him. And by this point, we see Jacob responding much differently. You notice back in verse 25 of chapter 30, the beginning of our section for today, he says to Laban, I'm, I've, I've done my thing. I've kept my promises to you. And, and you've not been equitable to me. You've not been fair. You've not been just. Laban kind of plays this game with him. He acts like he wants to, to do good things to him. And he realizes that, that God has blessed him, Laban's household, because of Jacob. He tells Jacob that. I, I figured out that the reason that I've prospered so much is, is because you're here. And, and you're kind of a mess, but... But your God must really favor you, and he keeps doing great things to you, and to me too, so I really don't want you to go. So Jacob says to him, I tell you what, um, I need to keep my wives because I've already worked for them, but, but I think I should get some stuff from your flock. Now, he says to him, I'm just going to take the ones that are not white or black. Goats were mostly black or brown, sheep were mostly white, 
And he said, I'll take all the ones that kind of look like mutants. I'll take the ones that are spotted and speckled. And, and Laban thought, that's a good idea. I've got a pretty great herd. Most of them are not mutant. And, and I'm just going to let you have those. But, but just to be sure, because he didn't want to give Jacob one single thing, he sends his sons and shepherds out into the flock, and he takes all the ones that are sort of mutant, and he sets them apart, and then he puts three days' journey between the two of them, and basically says to Jacob, good luck. And then Jacob does this really odd thing. He takes pieces of wood, and he strips them, and leaves like little spots and speckles and stripes, and he puts them over near the watering holes where they take the sheep and goats each day to be watered, and that's whenever they would breed and somehow they produced these spotted, speckled, mottled animals. Now, this is one of the reasons we skip over this text. We don't know what to do with that. Like, were there magical properties in this? Did he put some sort of, like, hex on them? Was, what was going on with this? It's interesting, as you read most, like, scholars on this text, they don't really know what to do with it either, like the smartest ones. Probably the best way to understand this is very similar to the text we saw last week. If you remember back in verse 14 of chapter 30, Reuben, this young guy, goes out into the field and picks these plants that we translate mandrakes. And Rachel knows this, and she wants some of Reuben's mandrakes, so she barters with Leah. We talked about that nasty story last week. What did Rachel think those mandrakes would do? Well, there was some sort of like countryside legend that if you partook of the mandrakes that you would become more fertile. That's bogus. They, they didn't do that. But if you remember last week's text, Rachel did have a kid, of course, Joseph. Similarly, that's probably what's going on with these poles and sticks here in this text. There was nothing magical about them. But there was some sort of legend that had grown up that if you put your animals in front of these sticks, if they bred in front of vegetation that was spotted and, and, and specked and striped, that you would get animals like that. Because of modern genetics and understanding a whole lot more about agrarian issues, we understand that that's not the way things work today. But Jacob was giving in to local legends. It wasn't the fact that he put these sticks, these spotted and striped sticks in front of these animals that made them produce those kinds of animals as offspring. The reason this happened is because God did it. We saw in chapter 31 that Jacob had had a dream. Notice in verse 9, he mentions this to his wives. God had come to him and told him, I'm going to bless you, and it's going to be surprising and a little bit weird. So Jacob says to himself, well, I know some local legends. I'll help you out here. But the reality is, he was not enriched by these spotted, speckled, and striped animals because he did this local legend. The reason is, is because God decided he would bless him. Because that's what God does. God keeps his promises to his people. That's grace. We said last week that, that justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, but grace is getting a gift when you deserve justice. What did Jacob deserve because of all his scheming and manipulation? He deserved justice. But what did God keep doing in Jacob's life? He kept giving him grace. I'm going to say to you, and this might help you a little bit as you think about the way that you interact with the world around you. 
A lot of people think that because you're a churchgoer, like you're one of those people that gets up on Sunday morning, one of those freaks that doesn't hang out and do yard work and hang out at the community center or whatever, you're one of those people, right? Like you're one of those Jesus people. They think that you have no conception of what real life is like, that you live in some sort of ethereal la-la land. One of the best things you can do to, to engage people with gospel truth, to get to the point where you can help them understand their need, is to explain yours. One of the things I love about the Scripture is that it doesn't hide from us the reality of the sinfulness of God's people. And yet it also doesn't hide the reality that God blesses them, not because they deserve blessing, much the opposite. But His grace is confounding. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense. And brothers and sisters, this is how you have to approach the world around you. Admitting, frankly, that that you're kind of a mess too. And apart from grace, that you would be a massive disaster with no hope. And yet the gospel that God has brought to you through Christ and all of its corresponding blessings, it's all about grace. You're not good. I'm not good. But we have a good and amazing God. And the salvation that He accomplishes in us is about grace. This should affect the way that we treat each other. Guess what? Your husband, your wife, your friends, they are going to do things to you that cause you to want to give them justice. Now, I am not saying that we should never deal seriously and honestly and openly with sin. We, we must do that because God takes sin seriously. And yet, He never walks away from us. I gave you a quote from Matt Chandler, a pastor in Texas several months ago. It goes like this. Love says, I have seen the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. That's good. Simple, but it's good. Love says, personifying love, I have seen the ugly parts of you and I'm staying. That's the gospel. Not just the one that promises us eternal life, forgiveness from our sins, but the gospel that promises that God will never abandon us, that He will be with us and care for us. Your hope is not in your goodness. Your hope is in a good God. But notice that Jacob does change. What would Jacob have done before? He probably would have schemed. He would have stolen some of the white sheep and black goats and taken off by night and and then ambushed Laban when he came after him. That's what the old Jacob would have done. What's the new Jacob do? The new Jacob responds to the dream that the Lord gave him and then he worked hard. Notice that that this text does not indicate to us that God just gives us everything and we just kind of sit back. That's not what happened with Jacob. The old Jacob was a schemer. This new Jacob, he had integrity. In fact, he says to Laban, if you come and, and check out my flocks, if you do an investigation, and by the way, this period took six years, and you find that I've stolen any of yours, you can take them back, and I guess punish me. Jacob tells him up front that I'm going to to use integrity for six years, even though he didn't know how long it would take. And then he worked hard. 
You see, the faithfulness of God does not mean we just get to do whatever we want. And this is where obedience comes in. Grace is a gift. Grace flows from a good God who never gives up on His people, but it must result in character change. If you are experiencing the the never-ending, unstoppable grace of God, it does not give you license just to go do whatever you want. And one of the most encouraging things about this text is this new Jacob is not like the old Jacob. This new Jacob worked hard. This old Jacob refused to be deceitful. So, so we have two things going on here, and we must hold them in tension. Jacob did not deserve grace, but that's what grace is. Grace is not getting what you deserve. It's getting a gift when you deserve punishment. But this one who received grace was transformed by grace. And brothers and sisters, that's one of the ways that you know that you are a recipient of grace. Let me explain that a little bit more simply. If you are not who you used to be, liar, deceiver, or at least not to the same degree, if you find yourself being punished for the things that you do to teach you, and then changing on the back end of the lessons, you can be pretty confident that God is at work in you. In fact, that's what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, that that God disciplines all of His sons and daughters. And if you don't have any discipline in your life, it means that you're not a son or daughter. But what's the result of that? It's the fruit of change. Whereas Jacob before was schemer and manipulator, now he becomes honest, hard worker. But we see a great contrast from Jacob and Laban. I've already said to you that that Laban is who Jacob would have become apart from grace. Laban is is sin left unchecked. Laban demonstrates to us that the power of sin is very strong. Laban was not on guard against this, however. And Laban was very self-dependent, like the old Jacob. And like the old Jacob left a destructive Uh, mess in his wake, Laban did this much more. To the point that when Jacob comes to Leah and Rachel and says to them, it's time for us to get out of here. Leah and Rachel are like, yeah, because our father doesn't love us. Laban was such a bad guy that despite the fact that he protested against this, he didn't even love his own family. This, This is what happens whenever you love yourself too much. When you love yourself too much, you have no capacity to love people around you. And of course, this is not God-like at all. God loves His people so much that He gives outward. Laban did not know or trust Jacob's God, and Laban was curved in on himself. Jacob's eyes were progressively being lifted up to the God that he could trust, and it was changing him. Laban's eyes were bent inward, and he became this ugly mutant that only loved himself, and it ruined all of his relationships. But Jacob believed in the promises of God, and he took off, convincing his wives and family to go with him, and he was rich by this point. As the story tells us, Laban goes after him. 
that God was watching out for Jacob. Laban probably was stronger in his forces than Jacob's family was. It's probably not an overstatement to say that he could have killed Jacob and taken back his daughters and grandchildren and flocks. But God comes to Laban and tells him not to mess with Jacob. God's watching out for the details. I think in this we see a very simple principle that we might as well articulate, and that is that God is always watching out for you. Piper says that when we perceive God to be doing one thing, He is doing 10,000. You don't know whenever you look and survey the the goings-on of your life, all that's going on behind the scenes. But God is watching out for you. He cares about you. He loves you. You will stop loving your kids before God stops loving you. And that will never happen, right? God was watching out for Jacob every moment of his life. Laban finally does overtake him, and he's angry. He's mad. Frankly, he's, he's kind of like a little kid throwing a fit here. He makes it clear to Jacob that he considers Jacob's wives to be his property still. And that's how they felt. That his kids, Jacob's kids, belonged to him. That all of his wealth belonged to him. But there's something about this God that Jacob serves that Laban at least respects. You'll notice that that Jacob actually calls him that. There's one of the names for God that is only mentioned here in this text in verse 42 of chapter 31. Jacob calls him the fear of Isaac. It's an interesting name for God. That's why it's capitalized in a lot of your texts there. Why does he call him that? Because Jacob had gotten to the point that he realized that God deserved his reverence, even even holy reverence. And Laban had been around Jacob long enough that he got that, and that's why he listened to the voice of God. So I say to you that a text that we typically would skip over because we don't really know what to do with it demonstrates to us two really profound realities. The first is that God always keeps His promises to His people, and therefore, that should lead us to deep confidence in Him, to trust Him, and to do the things which please Him. Because life is really hard, and because we live in a world full of sinful people that hurt each other and do terrible things, whenever we face trial, our tendency often is to curve inward to feel bad for ourselves, and to try to figure a way out and then justify terrible behavior. Laban had done that his whole life. When things didn't go Laban's way, when his creator put his finger on Laban's craving, because God made all of his people to be cravers, when the creator put his finger on on the button of Laban's craving, what did Laban do? He didn't respond in humility and repentance. He kept curving inward. He kept looking inside, feeling sorry for himself, trying to find a way out, and he destroyed everything and everyone around him. Jacob used to be like that. Jacob would have become like his uncle and father-in-law. 
But Jacob learned because God had set him apart and chosen him for himself. He learned that, that God would not let him get away with that. He kept putting roadblocks everywhere Jacob turned. He wouldn't let him get away with it. If you're one of God's children today, we have to admit that that ticks us off, right? It makes us mad that God does that to us. Why does he keep putting roadblocks in my way? Why, does he let, why doesn't he let me have all my dreams? Why doesn't he let this be fulfilled? Why does he do that? You could look at him and say, it's because he's a killjoy. And even if you don't put things in these categories, you are a craver. You want happiness. But because God loves you, because he loves you, he will put roadblocks in your path that will lead you to craving the wrong things. Because he loves you. And a promise of his gospel is that he won't just give you eternal life, but he'll change your life here. And brothers and sisters, those roadblocks, though they don't feel like it, are marks of grace in your life. And now we can look at Jacob and we say, the roadblocks led him to change, to repentance, and it led him to crave the right things. Ultimately, Jacob, who had been a truster of self, curved inward, manipulating life to make it work for him, he understood that when God put his finger on Jacob's craving, that he wasn't doing it because he hated him, but because he loved him. Laban never learned that lesson. Laban lived a life of sinful rebellion, and his legacy is destruction. Jacob, who becomes Israel in the next chapter, Jacob would be one who was much different. One God had chosen, one God pursued, and one God changed. The people of Israel needed to hear this to know where they came from. They who craved, they who had dreams and aspirations needed to trust the promises of God that He would never fail them, that He would satisfy them. And we ourselves look back at this text and we can see ourselves. Recognizing that the power of sin is strong, tempting us to satisfy our God-given cravings with wrong things, sinful things, destructive things. But if we are His people, we know that those cravings that He has given us can only be satisfied in Himself. And He keeps manipulating our lives and moving us around, bringing the roadblocks, giving us new visions, new paths, leading us to repentance and change, and blessing us all the while because He loves us. I said to you at the beginning of our time together this morning, salvation is holistic. This wasn't just about Jacob getting some sort of mansion in some sort of ethereal, cloudy city. This was about Jacob turning from being a liar to being honest, turning from being a schemer to a hard worker, turning from being a truster of self to a truster of God. Israel needed to hear that because they struggle with these same sins. And you need to hear this. I need to hear this because we struggle with these same sins. By God's grace, what He does in the hearts of His children 
is he turns us over time into reflexive trusters and reflexive obeyers. That is sloppy language, but I use it on purpose because I want to illustrate something. Jacob before reflexively looked inward and trusted himself, and it led to terrible decisions. But because God progressively taught this man who is now in his 70s or 80s, Jacob reflexively learned to trust God, reflexively learned to respond in obedience. If you see that showing up in you, reflexively learning to trust God, reflexively learning to obey Him, even when it doesn't feel good, you know that He's at work. If you are not seeing that show up like you should be seeing it show up, it's a day of repentance. It's a day to pray to Him and ask, Lord, may I hear Your voice and help me to respond to You in obedience. And if all of this just sounds a little bit crazy today, if you're on the path of satisfying all your cravings on your own, but you wonder why you're never quite happy, this is a chance for you to consider that there is a better way. That the God who made you, made you in His image, and He gave you all the cravings that you have. But He has brought all the roadblocks to you so that you will turn to another source of joy, Himself. So He has given us His Son, the promised Redeemer, to turn us from worshipers of self to worshipers of God. You see, that's what Jesus does. Jesus is not just the source of our forgiveness. Jesus changes us. He is both the model of what one looks like when one walks with God, and He is the means whereby we get there. So Jesus is the one who would be the hope of Israel, the hope of all the world. He is the one that we look to today, the one who can change us, and so I call his people, those who claim that they belong to him, I call you today to trust him, to cry out to him, to depend upon him and obey him. I call those of you who have not yet trusted him to look to him as your source of forgiveness and the one who alone can satisfy all your longings and bring you back to God. Jacob was one whose life was marked by lots and lots of disappointments. But God never forgot him, and God was changing him. And what we find here at the end of this text is God has enriched him, and God has blessed him. So take time today, if you belong to him, to think about how he has been faithful to you, to respond faithfully to the way that he is shaping you, to confess and repent of the ways that you trust yourself, and as God taught Israel all those thousands of years ago about their tendencies and how to change and how to trust Him, may He do the same thing on our behalf today. Let's pray.